Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. So welcome again to City Light North Adelaide. I'm so glad that you have chosen to join us this week. Uh, This is actually the final week of our series through the book of 1 John. Uh, We've been travelling through the book of 1 John for quite a number of weeks now, uh, and we call this series um, Proof of Life. And this particular section of Scripture is a great uh, way to wrap wrap up. In fact, uh, this closing section of Scripture, um, the first time I I read this, I thought, oh, man, I should have assigned someone else to preach this week uh, because there's quite a bit in there. Um, quite a bit of complicated stuff that we're going to have to talk about tonight, but it almost seems like it could be four sermons in one if we broke it down even further, but that's kind of the point because he's, he's wrapping up, he's bringing all the themes of this book together, restating what's most important, and that final line that he leaves us with, the final verse, uh, 21, is really him putting a doorstop there and saying, hey, this is the message, this is what I want you to see, little children, keep yourselves from idols. So if you're visiting, this is a great week for you to join us. Um, It's all about knowing Jesus, knowing who you are in Jesus, and knowing that Jesus is in you. So this kind of week ties it all together, um, but also I would highly encourage you to go back over, uh, listen online to the podcast. You'll get a lot out of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your Apostle John who wrote this book of 1 John. Uh, we thank you for his encouragement to us. Um, we thank you for your word and we ask that as we uh, wrap up this series tonight, wrap, wrapping up the book of 1 John, that you will uh, come and speak to us and help these uh, truths to dwell deeply in our hearts and change us. In your precious name, Amen. So this passage of scripture starts with, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. Here at City Light, we are completely nuts about Jesus. That's why who we worship, that's why we do what we do. We love Jesus, we love who he is, we love what he has done, we love what he is doing and We want to love what he wants for us. And John here, he says, if if anyone kind of has has to kind of come up with their own idea or imagine why John is writing, we don't have to imagine. He tells us. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? That you may know you have eternal life. John is writing that you may know if you're a Christian, that you may know you have eternal life, that you may know that you will be with Jesus forever. And all throughout this book, John has wanted Christians to be grounded in the truth. All throughout this book, we call this series Proof of Life because all throughout the book of 1 John, there's these proofs or tests that you really are a Christian. And he wants, he's given people these proofs not to try and trick them up and to try and get them to, to doubt they're a Christian. He's given people these proofs so that they know that they're a Christian. He's not trying to get people to say, well, maybe I'm not saved. He's trying to get people to be confident in the fact that they really are saved. He wants to give us confidence. He wants us to know, to be sure we have eternal life. 
And why does he want us to know that? Why does he want us to be so grounded and so sure that we are in Jesus, that we have eternal life, that we know that we know that we know that we are Christians? Because I want you to think for a minute this. What if you knew that so deep down in your soul, so deeply that you never forgot it? What if you knew that so much so deeply that it always informed how you lived. If you knew you were in Jesus and knew you had eternal life, how would that knowledge shape how you live? Because this is what John wants for us. This is, this is why he's writing. This is, this is what he wants for us so deeply is to know that we know that we know that we have eternal life. Because he knows that if we know that, that will change how we live. Or at least it should change how we live. If you are a Christian in this room, you have a hard call on your life. We need to know that we have eternal life because if you want to live a life that's, that's so-called poured out for Jesus or live for Jesus completely and not other things that this world has to offer which can be good things but they're not the ultimate thing you will need to be confident in eternal life I mean think with me for a minute what would cause someone to give up a, a comfortable upper middle class lifestyle to you know to go across the world and, and serve Christ You wouldn't do that if you weren't confident. Or perhaps even what would cause someone to, to walk across the street to serve and love their neighbour and, and share Jesus or, or to work, walk across their workshop or, or their office space. What would cause you to, to risk uh, loss of your own accord, be it financial or pride or, or status or, or time or, heck, your own comfort because you don't get to sit on the couch all the time. You've got to love people. If not, something true, something eternal. John wants us to be so deeply grounded. He wants us to know that we have eternal life, to know that we are in Jesus. He's given us these proofs because he wants it to change how we live. And he wants us to, to, to so know God, to so be confident in God that we are, are just willing to give up other things for his sake. And what are those other things? We'll, 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 verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from, from idols. And we'll get to that. So verse 14 goes on and, and he's continuing about this confidence. He says, and this is the confidence that we have towards him. So because of Jesus, because we know we have eternal life, this is the confidence we have toward him, towards God. That if we ask anything, According to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests we have asked of him. So I think uh, being uh, Mother's Day is kind of an appropriate uh, part of the scripture to have here because God is a good parent. 
We have a good Father who listens to us. We can ask anything from God. We have access to the Father. We have access to God. We have His attention. He's not ignoring us. I don't know if you've ever kind of gone up to talk to someone before and you felt like they're just not paying you attention. Now, I can pretty much guarantee that uh, we live in, the, in the, the age of the mobile phone, um, smartphones for dumb people, and we live there and we stare at this phone and we know that we have done this to others and not paid them attention. We, we are distracted. I, and I think it's one of the, the biggest traps that, as parents, and I've got my own uh, one-year-old boy, is to think to myself, I have to not look at this so I can pay attention to him. I think we are so used to trying to talk to people who are distracted and trying to talk to people who are doing other things and trying to talk to people that just don't listen to us that actually we have a hard time comprehending the fact that God actually, when we speak, he listens. When we speak, we, he has our attention. We have his attention. And so God always hears us. He always listens to us. That doesn't mean that he always gives you what you want. And some people have trouble with this verse because it sounds like he might. But God always hears and responds. And like a good parent, he, he responds with, with yes or no or, or not yet later. Some people kind of read this verse and think if we know he hears us whenever we ask, we know that we have the request we've asked of him. I, I think that this is a really dangerous verse out of context because people might think, well, I can ask God for whatever I want and I'm going to have it. That's not what this says because if you read just a little bit before, if we ask anything according to his will. So, so how do we get God to say yes to our requests when we pray? I promise you, God will always say yes to whatever you ask for if you ask according to his will. If God has willed something and we, we pray for it, of course he'll say yes. We've been praying for God to grow his church and to further his kingdom for his glory. And of course he wants that. Um, I don't think he ever says no to that. Sometimes he says later. He wants to say yes to that. And I think that's the thing with prayer, is that as we uh, mature in our understanding of prayer, we, we learn that it's actually less about us telling God what, what we want and more about us aligning ourselves with God's will. I think, um, especially I remember myself growing up as a, as a kid, kind of thinking that you pray this, you, you get that. And I think we, we need to understand that God is not a vending machine. I pray that my team will win the football match this coming Saturday. And I'm not saying you shouldn't pray for that. I mean, if you're a Port Power supporter, you probably definitely need to pray for that. <laughs> but what happens when the other team's praying the same thing, right? Is it like whoever gets more prayers on their side, God's going to answer that one? 
That was the thinking of, uh, in the Old Testament of, of the prophets who were, who were trying to beat Elijah at, his own, you know, at the, the prayer game. They thought, well, there's more of us. We're going to pray harder. We're going to be louder. We're going to cut ourselves, and God's going to hear us. It's, God doesn't work like that. God can't say yes to both teams winning because a draw is not really a win. Or, you know, we can't really just go ahead and pray, hey, God, I really want you to bless me with a million dollars so that I can have nice things because I don't see how that's for, for our good ultimately in his glory God answers our prayers but prayer is mostly about us discovering God's will and aligning ourselves with it because he always says yes, he always says yes to the prayers that are in line with his will. And I want to encourage uh, those of us who are parents and those of us who, who will day, one day be parents and even those of us who, who parent uh, the family of God and, and uh, mentors to, to younger people in the church, and so really I'm talking to everyone here, um, I want us to, to be spiritual parents and parents like God. We want to listen to our kids and listen to the children among us and respond to them for, the, for their good, not for their want. Because you know that sometimes not everything we want is actually good for us. I can imagine if, if a child came up to me and said, I want a helicopter, and they didn't just mean a matchbox car, they meant, I want a Channel 7 used chopper helicopter. If a five-year-old said that, and you know, well, like, I'm like, well, the kid prayed for it, I'm gonna, or asked me for it, I'm going to give them what they want. Well, you know that's only going to hurt him, right? You wouldn't put a five-year-old in the, uh, in the pilot seat of a helicopter. Or even sometimes a child might come to you and say, I, I, want, a, I want a bag of lollies. And you know, giving the kid a bag of lollies is not always a bad thing, but I recommend you ask the parents first. Giving the kid a bad lolly is not always a bad thing, but if you say yes to that one too often, the kid's going to get large. But if the kid comes to you and says, I want a bag of lollies, your initial thing might be like, well, no, I said yes to that yesterday. But what if they came to you and said, I want a bag of lollies because I want to take it and I want to share it and I want to bless my friends. And you know what? I've got some friends uh, whose families are poor and they never get lollies. And I'm going to take these lollies and I'm going to give them away. How many of us would, would want to say no to that? We have a will for our children to be kind and generous. And in the same way, God wants us to be kind and generous, and he also wants us to be aligned with his will, which is not just for our wants, it's for his good. I want to take a moment and, and hear the, the love of the Apostle John who wrote this for his flock. He's an old man writing this. And he loves the church and he loves these people like he is their father under the heavenly father. And he wants them to, to be confident. And so I want to ask, do you have fear in coming to God in prayer? Do you see God as some sort of authority figure where you have to say the right words in the right order? Or risk kind of his wrath? Or do you come to God thinking perhaps he's like 
um, so many other people in your life and he's too busy, too distracted looking at his phone to hear you? Do you think he will not listen? Because you need to know that God loves you and he always hears your requests. He cares for you. And if you think that God doesn't answer you, you need to be reminded that he does, but he just doesn't always say yes. And that sometimes prayer is more about us discovering his will than us telling God our will. We say all this, and and this is in the the context of the next part of the verse. Um, This God answers our prayers um, according to his will is in fact given out of what comes next. And it's this, verse 16. This is the part of the passage that I'm like, oh, I don't want to have to deal with this, but here it is. And we deal with it because we've been given all of God's word and we know it's all for our good and all for our joy. So it says this, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. For we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. This is one of those particular passages that is hard to understand, and in fact there's a lot of debate among theologians and scholars about which is the sin that does not lead to death and which is the sin that leads to death. Um, I'm going to perhaps... I'm going to talk about like five different options and I'm going to put forward the one that I think is right, but we don't, like, I'm not, I'm willing to be wrong. This is just what I think might be right. We can't pick and choose what we like in, in Scripture and, and kind of ignore the rest. And, and one of the reasons that we as a church choose to regularly preach through the entire books of the Bible is that we come to passages like this and we can't just skip over it. And it's important that we don't just skip over it. Uh, especially when we're reading scripture and we're reading the Bible for ourselves and we're, we're having uh, Bible teaching is to, to not skip over it because we don't just want to have a Christianity and, and have a God that is the parts of the Bible that we like and ignore the parts of the Bible that we don't like. Because if we start doing that, we'll, we'll just pick our, our favorite attributes of God and, and never talk about the hard ones or never talk about perhaps the ones that, that are not our personality type. So we, we always want to address all of Scripture because we want to worship the real God. We want to learn from the real God. We don't want to, to worship and to learn from our kind of cut-and-paste creation of who we think God is. So, so how have uh, people tackled this? What is the sin that leads to death? The fact that there is... Sin, firstly, I just want to address this. The fact that there is sin that does not lead to death is actually a huge encouragement to us, to Christians, because it reassures believers that that when they do fall into sin from time to time, every day, they are in Christ and it will not lead to death. Uh, 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
So, so we know that there are sins that do not lead to death. Uh, here it also, we need to, to balance that out with uh, 1 John 1, 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so we know that uh, even those of us who are Christian, there is still a battle within us. There is still sin within us that we need to face. So if we say we don't have sin, we deceive ourselves. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's good news. So there's this distinction between sins that do and do not lead to death has been explained in, in a few numerous ways. And one, in, one approach, uh, I'm going to go through, uh, like the preacher does, go through what I think are the options and I'll finish with the one that I think is right, but feel free to pick your own. Uh, one approach is to explain it in terms of like the Old Testament distinguishes between sins that were committed intentionally and sins that were committed uh, unintentionally. And so uh, Numbers 15, 22 to 25 says this, but if you commit sin unintentionally and do not observe all these commandments that have just been given, that the Lord has spoken to Moses, all that the Lord has commanded you by Moses from the day the Lord gave you the commandment, and almost through the generations. If then it was done unintentionally without the knowledge of the congregation, all the congregation shall offer one bull from the herd for a burnt offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord, and grain, and so on and so on. So that's one theory, is that this sin that does not lead to death is, is the unintentional sin. So, you know, if you accidentally committed sin, it doesn't count. Um, however, there is no hint in First John of that at all. And so I think we can say probably not that one and move on. Uh, another approach invo- involves uh, identifying this sin with the same one that uh, Jesus talks about in Mark 3, 28 to 30. Um, and that is where people come to Jesus and say, uh, you're healing and you're doing all these miracles, but you're doing it by the power of Satan. And the, the thought in, in Mark 3 is that um, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit and, and that is an unforgivable sin. So they're saying perhaps that's the one that leads to death. But that is also uh, not probably what it's saying here because in Mark it actually gives an explanation for what it's talking about and it says that the nature of the sin there was ascribing Jesus' works to the devil and again there's no hint of that in First John. It's not saying that. Our third approach identifies... Uh, saying that those sins that lead to death are those ones that are particularly horrible sins. And this would be the uh, kind of more traditional Catholic approach of, like, uh, of mortal sins, sins that are particularly bad. So there's sins, and then there's really bad sins, and these are the ones that lead to death. Uh, for example, they would say uh, adultery, murder, idolatry, and apostasy, so denying Jesus. Um, that's also, again, there's no evidence in First John for that, and also we know that uh, before God, no sin. All sin is detestable. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are saved by grace, uh, as Ephesians would tell us, and so that's probably not it. Uh, the kind of fourth approach would be that, that the sin that leads to death is, is a deliberate and persistent rejection of the truth, and such a sin would lead to death because you're continually rejecting the truth and not accepting it. I think the kind of the best approach that we could take here is to examine who it is in First John that John is 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 trying to say is committing the sin that doesn't lead to death. 
He says in the text that it's the brother whose sin is not leading to death and that we're urged to pray for. And so this is to suggest, and I think most wonderfully for those of us in Christ, is that the sin that does not lead to death is that of the believer. The sin that doesn't lead to death is the sin of the Christian. And if that's the case, then the sin that does lead to death is that of an unbeliever. And why is it that the Christian's sin does not lead to death? It's not because we're especially pretty or talented or good. In fact, there, I think that I know personally a lot of non-Christian people who are, by modern moral standards are a lot gooder than Christians. Gooder is in the dictionary, look it up. So it can't be based on that. We are encouraged by this because the sin of a Christian does not lead to death because Jesus has died the death for us. The sin that leads to death is the sin committed by someone who is not in Christ because Christ has not paid for that sin for them. Within the overall context of 1 John, uh, there were, as we learned in, earlier in other weeks, uh, sex or uh, cessationists who'd broken away from the believers, who'd broken away from the church and were leading people into a cult. And so in the context of 1 John, we know that John is writing, he's writing to the church to remind them that they are in Christ and their sins are forgiven. And he's encouraging them, these people that have wandered away from the church, that are trying to draw you away, that are teaching other things about Christ, there is no forgiveness for sins there. These are the people that he called antichrists earlier in in chapters 3 or 4, perhaps. The sin that leads to death is is the sin of those who deny that Christ and his atoning death, that he came in the flesh, that he rose from the grave, and that believing in him is necessary for salvation because we know that without Jesus, in no other name is there salvation found. The sin that leads to death is the sin that is not covered in Christ. And that is really this kind of crescendo just towards the end, the central message or the central thrust of John is that be found in Christ. Be found in Christ, be covered in Christ and your sin will not lead to death. Why, why do we sell ourselves out for Christ? Why do we live for Christ? Why do we worship Christ? Because in Him eternal life is found. In Christ we have life, without Christ we have death. John even says here that, that all wrongdoings are sin. But, but if a person is willfully sinning apart from Christ, their sin will certainly lead to death. If they are in Christ, his atoning death has covered a multitude of sins. He has already prayed the price of death, beaten death, and now we live in eternal life because of him. And so what is our encouragement or, or our command from, from this scripture for, for believers who are committing sin? It says here, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, so if you see your Christian brother or sister sinning, he shall ask and God will give him eternal life. He wrote this part about not praying for those sinning who, who you know, the sin that leads to death because he's, he's kind of 
You can't pray for a non-Christian to have Christian repentance apart from saving faith in Jesus. So these people that are broken away from the church, he's saying, don't pray for them as though they're Christian. We need to evangelize to them. We need to share the gospel with them. We need to tell them about who Jesus really is and pray for them in that way. But you don't pray for them to have forgiveness in the same way you would a brother or a sister. I believe that's what he's saying here. And so when you see other Christians falling into sin, you should pray for them. In fact, Jesus demonstrates this kind of prayer for us in what is known as the high priestly prayer. In John 17, 9, he says this about pretty much, he's praying this prayer, I believe, for his entire flock, for all Christians all time everywhere. I am praying for them, words of Jesus. I'm not praying for the world, but I'm praying for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So the principle here is that if we see a brother or sister falling into sin, we should pray for them and God will restore them. And we know through faith that um, Jesus' blood has already paid for that sin and it's forgiven. But, but how much is that actually um, not what we often do? When we see a fellow Christian falling into sin, how much is actually our first reaction often to gossip about them instead? I want to encourage us, and in fact, perhaps gently rebuke us, myself included, that, that prayer ministry is not gossip ministry. We bring it to the Lord first. We bring it to God first. And it's... You can kind of see how this, this works out. Uh, you're perhaps in your, you're in your discipleship group. Um, I'm going to say on a Tuesday night, because we have none that meet on a Tuesday night, so I'm not picking on anyone. You're, you're there at your discipleship group on a Tuesday night, and you're like, yeah, guys, uh, prayer requests, I, I really just think we should pray for Andrew. Yeah, he's um, really struggling hard right now. He um, yeah, broke into several cars this week and punched his grandmother, and you know, he's just having a hard time. We've got to pray for him. Maybe there's a time and a place for, for sharing that, but it might not be like that. We've got to bring our prayers for fellow believers falling into sin to God and, and think to ourselves and discuss uh, with God in our hearts, is sharing this actually for their good or am I gossiping? Just a, a little challenge for us there. And what else is freeing about this is it, is it takes caring for them it takes it out of our hands and gives it to God because we believers, we who are in Christ we are saved by faith through grace God is at work in our lives to make us more like Christ but the reality is if you look around this room uh, even you look at the people in your discipleship group you look at the Christians that are here in your family uh, you know most of all the fact that even though that they are saved and they are being made like Christ, you know that they are not there yet if you Look around the room, and I'm not asking anyone to kind of put up their hand and tell me what's going on or, or, or to, to perhaps say, yeah, I know that and amen to that because you might get punched. Um, but you live with each other. You do life with each other. You know that, yes, you're in Christ. Yes, you are saved by grace. Yes, you are being made like Christ. But you know so much about yourself and those around you that they're not there yet. Anyone that thinks they are, they're full of themselves. And, and Jesus would say, like, who are you? You're not there yet. 
And so in this, as we see each other fall into sin, our response should be to pray for one another. Our response should be to uphold one another. And this is freeing for us because it means that we are personally not ultimately responsible for their account before God. God has called us in the church to be an encouragement to one another, to rebuke one another gently, uh, to, to uh, point out sin in each other's lives. But ultimately, it's not up to us to make other people change. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Only God can do that. It's our job to, to work with and for him. But we can hand that over to God and just care as he's called us to. We do all that we can do and then we give it to God. And so what I want to ask is in our call to, to encourage other believers towards holiness in Christ, are you doing what you can? Because sometimes we don't. We don't want to say anything. We don't want to uh, have the log in our eye and the, the speck in theirs. But are you doing what you can to, to love and disciple others towards Christ? And, and if you are, are you then recognizing what you can't and, and not pretending you're God and in fact allowing him to be God and giving it to him? I want to say this, don't be content to see people drift away from the freedom of grace they have in Christ because you didn't speak up. So John is not saying don't pray for those who don't know Christ, but right here he specifically, what he's talking about is not being content to watch fellow believers drift away. We have to pray for fellow brothers and sisters who are, who are straying from Christ just as Christ intercedes on our behalf with the full knowledge that nothing can pluck those who were born of Christ from his mighty hand. And then in this final kind of passage from verse 19 onwards, he turns uh, finally in his closing words, little children, keep yourselves from idols is how he finishes. And John in this last little passage, is going to uh, remind the church of their position in Christ with, with several we know statements. And it's kind of funny because he says we know, but sometimes we forget. And I think he's saying we know, not as a duh, but as a we know this, guys. Come on, be reminded. These are words of, of assurance or reassurance. He turns and he's heading towards this keep yourselves from idols. And this Keep yourselves from idols comes directly after we know, we know, we know. So why do we keep ourselves from idols? We know these things. So we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This sounds a little scary. The whole world is in the power of the evil one. We need to remember that Satan is completely defeated. He's done. And yet the world is, to an extent, still under the deception of his lies. John is reminding us that we all once lived in darkness before we knew Christ. And in this context of keep yourselves from idols, he's saying you shouldn't look back at that time with longing. Don't look back at the time before you knew Christ with longing and wish you could go back there. Remind yourselves, no, those people are perishing in the sin that leads to death. 
First Peter 2, 9-10 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Being a Christian isn't about who is good. It's about whose eyes have been opened who has been transformed out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It's about who's been saved. And we know that we are from God and the world lies in the power of the evil one in the context of keep yourselves from idols. Why do we keep ourselves from idols? We know that that we are from God. And verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. You can't claim to to be in God and to not know God's Son, Jesus, as Jesus is the truth. The idolatry... Uh, he's addressing in in 1 John 5 is uh, largely these people who had gone away and started their own sect. People had broken away from the church with false teaching, these so-called antichrists. Keep yourselves from idols in this context can be keep yourself from, from false ideas of Jesus. Again, the reason why we we study all of Scripture, the reason we don't skip over the the tough bits is because we don't want to create a God in our own image. We want to follow the God whose image we were created. We don't want to take an idea about God. We don't want to take a Jesus that is less than the real Jesus. We don't want diet Jesus. We don't want Jesus light. We, We don't want simply the Jesus of our own imagination. We want the Jesus of the Bible. And this is what these, these are, the, the, the breakaway people had done is they'd taken some ideas about Jesus, the parts they kind of liked, the parts that suited them, and they kind of chopped off the rest and, and left it on the floor and, and walked away. And Jesus doesn't let us do that. With Jesus, you have all of him or you have none of him. Because the Jesus of our own imaginations is not the real Jesus at all. So little children, keep yourself from idols. Keep yourself from false Jesuses, from false gods who aren't the real God and who don't have the power to save. The rest of verse 20, he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. It still seems like what a funny way to finish this journey we've been on. First, John. Keep yourselves from idols. John hangs his entire message on it. John at this stage is an old man. He is at this stage probably the last surviving of the 12 disciples. He is the kind of the, the great granddaddy of the church. He goes on to write second and third John, but they're about a, 
much shorter than this. And this is kind of, if I could say one last thing, it's this, keep yourselves from idols. Why this? Because he is the true God and eternal life. He alone is worthy of our worship. We heard before about the sin that does and does not lead to death. A sin problem is really a worship problem. What do you do with an idol? Now, there's probably not uh, many of us who've grown up in the Australian context and culture who have much experience with um, idols. There's, you know, that we know of. There's not too many of us who who have uh, relatives or or even grew up in in a home where there perhaps was a, a carved statue somewhere in the house. Some of us have, it, have got that experience, but not, not the bulk of Australians know what that's like. But a, a sin problem is really a worship problem, and an idol problem is really worship, the worship of the wrong thing. Sin is making anything or anyone other than God ultimate in your life. Even good things, or seemingly good things. And so perhaps in, in other cultures where it's more of a thing, it can seem a little more obvious when there's a, a statue in your house and you, you come along and you put some fruits and vegetables or fresh bread in front of the idol and, and that's a little more obvious. You're kind of pouring yourself out and, and worshipping that. And, but perhaps our idolatry is invisible to us because we live in it so much. We don't necessarily bake bread and, and leave it at the foot of our idols but we do pour ourselves out in other ways. Something like earning money can be a really good and helpful thing. It helps put food on the table. It provides a place to live. It can be used to to bless people. But it can be turned into an idol and then a sin, a worship problem when earning money becomes the highest goal in life. Or when we turn earning money into the goal to buy unnecessary things, you know, to pay for, for a bad habit or to fund an unhealthy addiction or, or to, to pay for selfish gain. Anything that is put above God is an idol. And good things that are gifts from God can become idols if too much emphasis is placed on them. Your family can be an idol. A good and gracious gift can be turned into an idol if it's placed above Jesus. I'm not saying that family is a bad thing. Of course it's not. But if you stop following Jesus because of your family. That is now in control of your life and Jesus is not. If you worship your children instead of worshipping the creator, those children have become an idol for you. If you worship your, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, more than you worship your creator, they have become an idol for you. The idolatry here was worshipping a false idea of God. 
that can be a trap for us, but I think also the insidious one for Christians is that good things God have given us can be placed subtly above God. The kind of crux or the, the, the point of this book here is this. Keep yourselves from idols. For all of us, the challenge is, is our identity, our worship, our life in Jesus or in something else? Is it in your work? Is it in yourself? Is it in your sport? Is it in your family? Is it in your kids? Is Is it in your pursuit of marriage? Is it in your pursuit of having a family? Is it in your pursuit of wealth? None of those things necessarily in and of themselves are bad things, but they're not ultimate things. Will we either love God and sacrifice of ourselves and our things to love God, or we will love stuff and sacrifice the things of God to love stuff? I want to encourage us all, like the words of John, keep yourself from idols. Be found in Jesus. Knowing that your eternity is safe in Christ changes the way that you live. It changes the way that you pray for others. It changes the way that you think, the way you love, the way you talk. Only when Christ is our highest goal and we keep ourselves from idols will we sacrifice everything else for his sake, for his name, for his good, for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of First John and we pray that at its close that this word will um, sit heavy on our hearts but not in a burdensome way, Lord, in a freeing way. You command us to keep ourselves from idols not because you are a hard taskmaster but because you know that the idols are a hard taskmaster. You know that the idols will never fulfill us. You know that the idols will only ever disappoint us. But Lord, you are the one who can fulfill us. You are the one who never lets us down. You are the one in whom life is found. And so you demand our worship, not because you're a megalomaniac, Lord, but because you know that's where our joy will be found. We pray that you help us to keep ourselves from idols so that we can keep our love for you and in you find joy. Lord, we pray that uh, this word of 1 John from your apostle, Lord, will sink deep down into our hearts and change the way we live and breathe and do life, that we could worship you with our stuff, worship you with ourselves, worship you with all of who we are and not worship who we are by neglecting you. We thank you that you are so good to us more than we deserve. And we thank you for your love. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.